1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. Evolution science helps you see the whole of it. Mm -hmm. As best as we can as human beings, it's the best single effort that's ever come together in human thought that gives you that appreciation for the whole. And whatever you do, you're part of that
0: whole. And I think that uh, an important contribution of this evolutionary perspective for people that really take it on is that it is uh, awe-inspiring.
2: That was Dr. Stephen Hayes, followed by Dr.
3: David Sloan Wilson on Psychologists Off the Clock. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy.
2: And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy.
4: And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbren, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments.
2: In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other.
4: You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock.
3: Debbie, you have an interview today with David Sloan Wilson and Stephen Hayes, who was on our previous episode, and we were talking about why did we want to have these two on the show, and it's really because they are forward thinkers. They're at the cutting edge of where the field of psychology is going to be going, and as Steve Hayes mentioned in the last episode, he's sort of a little bit always ahead of his time. So certainly integrating evolution science into uh, the field of psychology and as a bigger umbrella and some of the conversations that these two are having are conversations that are going to be informing the direction of how we know psychology you know, in the future. So I'm really excited to to share this with our listeners.
2: Thank you. Yes, I'm excited too. And for me, this was a big thrill because I was a double major in anthropology and psychology in as an undergraduate. And so I've always followed this field a little bit. So David Sloan Wilson is someone I've followed for a long time, as is Steve Hayes. So it was really cool for me to do that. And I also just really love that the field is headed this direction, because to me, being able to look at humans in this big context of where we came from, how we evolved, how we got culture and language and all these questions is really, really interesting. And these are two people, I think, who are very cutting edge in terms of talking about these issues. David Sloan Wilson was talking about um, how culture has evolved way before that was really an acceptable thing to do within evolutionary science. So it's been really fascinating, I think, to watch his work over the years and to have the chance to talk to, to these two these two people that I admire their work very much.
4: Yeah, it's it's so exciting and it's really fun because even though they were sort of ahead of the game, we are seeing evolutionary science pop up in psychology and just pop up on the bookshelves all over the place. Debbie, you and I, in our episode on the psychology of politics, when we talked about Heights, Jonathan Heights' wonderful book, um, we even talked a bit about David Sloan Wilson's work on cultural evolution and and how that influences politics and morality. And so this is really clearly a concept that is really informative for living in all sorts of domains, you know politics, morality, um, diet, sleep cycles. and and so I think this conversation between David Sloan Wilson and Steve Hayes is just really informative on lots of different levels. Um, so we hope that you lis- enjoy listening to these leading thinkers riffing on each other on these important topics.
2: Dr. Stephen C. Hayes is a professor of psychology at the University of Nevada. An author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles, he is especially known as a co-developer of acceptance and commitment therapy, one of the most widely used in researched new methods of psychological intervention over the last 20 years. His popular book, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, has sold, sold over a quarter million copies worldwide. Dr. Hayes has received several national awards, such as the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, and is ranked among the top most cited psychologists in the world. Dr. David Sloan Wilson is an American evolutionary biologist and a distinguished professor of biological sciences and anthropology at Binghamton University, part of the State University of New York. He applies evolutionary theory to all aspects of humanity in addition to the rest of life. His numerous books include Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution, Religion, and the Nature of Society, and Evolution for Everyone, How Darwin's Theory Can Change the Way We Think About Our Lives. Dr. Wilson publishes in anthropology, psychology, and philosophy journals in addition to his mainstream biological research and is the editor-in-chief of Evolution, This View of Life. Dr. Hayes and Dr. Wilson have been collaborating over recent years, co-authoring articles and bridging the divide between psychological and evolutionary sciences, and now they are co-editors and contributors to a new book called Evolution and Contextual Behavioral Science, an Integrated Framework for Understanding, Predicting, and Influencing Human Behavior. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. I really enjoyed your last really fantastic episode with Diana. It's good to see you again.
1: I'm happy to be here.
2: And David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. So I understand that you guys are together this week, that you're doing, is it a workshop?
1: doing a little course here at the the University of Nevada using our book, and we're also consulting on various projects and with colleagues here trying to, as you say, uh, continue to build the bridge between uh, evolution science and the behavioral sciences.
2: All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that bridge in a moment. But before we do, I want to um, just say something I really admire about both of your work that I've been following is that you really, you have something in common, I think, which is that you're both big picture thinkers. And you both sometimes just veer a little bit outside of conventional thinking in your fields. And I think you're both bold. And so our, our podcast is called Psychologists Off the Clock. Like what do what do psychologists talk about over coffee? And so I'm curious, I just imagine the two of you together, you know, in Reno having dinner, like, do you stay on topic talking about evolution and psychology or do you guys like what's, what kind of, when you guys had dinner, what do you talk
0: about? Yeah. The price of being a big thinker is that you cannot escape your work ever. Uh-huh. So, more or less everything is in tune with, um, uh, um, uh, um, what we do, basically. <laughs> so uh, we we diverge a little bit and talk about family and hobbies and things like that. But uh, really, our passion is is our science and and uh, and so that slips over into uh, all our waking hours and think that's true with when I'm at home and when I'm with Steve here.
1: okay. well I, I uh, so enjoy talking to David because that big picture. has moved my big picture in important ways and just uh then seeing new things opening up it's exciting we uh if you were to watch us, you'll see us cycle back to arguments that we've had that look like they'll probably never end uh but then there's other areas where uh you know we come up with new ideas i think for both of our work and and uh, the book is kind of an expression of that. I mean, I don't think we could have sat down at day one, when we first met each other, and vowed up this book wouldn't be possible. That it's a reflection of a long process of collaboration and communication between uh, two people who respect each other and enjoy playing in that way.
2: Wonderful. So,
1: yeah, don't sit on a conversation with the two of us. And- <laughs> You want some big picture, blah, blah, blah. (laughs)
2: That sounds pretty interesting to me. Um, How long have you been collaborating and how did you come together from these two very, you know, I mean, there, I think there's a lot of overlap between these two fields when you stop and think about it, but they've been fairly separate. So how did you, how did this happen?
0: Well, Tony Bigland, who wrote the foreword for our book, modestly says in the foreword that the most important thing he ever did was to introduce Steve and me to each other. So it was Tony that, uh, who was working a long time with Steve. They were long-term collaborators uh, and had more or less come across my work uh, on religion from an evolutionary perspective, invited me to speak. So, uh, And then um, I thought it was very important to introduce me to Steve. And so that was 10 years ago. Yeah. About 10 years ago. And we've been interacting with each other ever since.
1: Great. Right. Well, and I think it's... Uh you know, a personal thing, but it's a professional thing as well, because David and his big picture thinking, uh, you know, includes uh, behavior and what happens within the lifetime of the individual, even though it's not his area of expertise. And frankly, that there are a lot of uh, evolutionary folks out there for whom that's not true at all. Mm -hmm. We're just now emerging out of a kind of more gene centric uh, time. But the wing of psychological thinking that I'm out of, has always uh, thought of itself as part of the evolution sciences, although frankly, without fully doing their homework, including me. And so there was this odd kind of thing when we did meet each other of immediately realizing that we're related in our thinking already, and that we had some serious work to do. I had a lot, and I actually took a sabbatical. I'm on a sabbatical right now seven years ago, and I did it on evolution science, and I tortured David. He basically became my mentor. And I'd say, what book should I read? And I'd read it, and then we'd talk about it. And that was the next book I should read, and I'd read it, and (laughs) we'd talk about it. And uh, I came out of that year really firmly believing that modern evolution science is the future of applied psychological science. I think what clinicians are doing is applied evolution science. They just don't realize it yet. And it's lying there in plain sight and when you see it, I think we're gonna be more effective, we're gonna have more fun. I think the society will will receive more benefit from us.
0: And I think what's important to get out at the beginning of this interview is the the broad historical context for all of this. That although evolution um, developed in the biological sciences more or less continuously since Darwin and therefore has become enormously sophisticated, it experienced a case of uh, arrested development in relation to human affairs. And it has only been uh, in the closing decades of the 20th century that the human related disciplines have become uh, rethought or started to be rethought from uh, an evolutionary perspective. So us evolutionists are proud of saying, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And that statement Nothing about humanity makes sense except in the light of evolution. Nothing about therapy, nothing about policy, nothing about economics makes sense except in the light of evolution. Of course, is dumbfounding for most people, but yet that is what we are working for.
1: Well, and I, and I think we're beginning to see in the book, but also in the in the additional projects we have coming along, the additional books we have coming along, that that isn't just a patina or something, it, it penetrates the... Most basic issues that we're used to thinking about as psychologists, and it, it it modifies them. And and yet for I have to say, for the wing that I come out of, which was always very functional and contextual, I wanted to look at the act-in context and expand it out to include the cultural context, the biological context, et cetera, and de- didn't have the the tools to do that in a consistent way without really being more sophisticated about evolution science, you know, the resonance was so deep. I told this uh, story just a couple times. I'll, I, I think I've not said it in a podcast or whatever, but after my first few conversations with David, I went home and cried because it was like, I, I found one. <laughs> because I've been talking to evolutionists who have been dismissing I mean sometimes in almost cruel ways they don 't literally don 't even want to talk to me and it 's not just me it 's the whole wing because you know if you 're really gene centric if you really don 't if you don 't think in a more systemic and multidimensional, dimensional multi level way, well then why would you want to be talking to psychologists other than you know make sure you think about you know what happened on the savannah when you 're dealing with your clients, which only gives you, it can give you some ideas there 's nothing wrong with that idea it 's just such a, a superficial use of it. And uh, so I think it's kind of like coming home. Uh, and I think it isn't just me. There's a lot of us out there. I think clinicians around the world who really want to be whole professionals. And that requires more than what science has been given us. It requires more than just protocols for syndromes. It requires principles, but then they have to be put into a larger schema, a larger system. You can't just walk in with a hundred different thoughts in your head. As a practitioner, you'll be overwhelmed. You'll miss what's right in front of you. But it turns out, evolutionary thinking actually simplifies at the same time that it deepens and broadens. So that's exactly what we want of a theory, and it's why it's the queen of the or king of the theories in the life sciences. All of them except ours. <laughs>
0: Right. They're,
2: they're neck and neck in this this competition for most important theory, right? Uh,
0: uh, a couple points in, in, in sequence. Uh, a point about my own field of evolution and how it became uh, what we call gene-centric. That for Darwin, evolution was about variation, selection, and heredity, a resemblance between parents and offspring. But as soon as genes were discovered, then it was as if genes are the only mechanism of inheritance, as if the only way that offspring can resemble their parents is by sharing genes, which is patently false. So part of what's happened in my own field, and which is a requirement for a broader integration, is for the evolutionary biologists to themselves go back to basics and, and think about evolution in, in, in terms of heredity, not just genes. And when you do that, Then other inheritance systems come into view. Uh, One of them is epigenetics, uh, the inheritance of gene expression, not just genes. And that's still biological and chemical and all that kind of thing. Um, Another is uh, forms of social learning found in many species. Now we're straying into the territory of Skinner, right? Mm -hmm. And, And then the fourth are forms of symbolic thought that are very distinctively humans. So that's straying into the territory of uh, relational frame theory among other things, but more generally linguistics and, and all of the humanities, basically, sure. that place an emphasis on culture and social constructivism and, and all of these. So what that means is, is that in order for um, evolutionary biology to go back to basics, it actually has to, it needs yeah. these other disciplines that have been studying these topics for a long time, although not explicitly from an evolutionary perspective. So that makes uh, people like Steve and his colleagues very, very central to the development of core evolutionary uh, theory. But a lot of people don't get that yet. And that's one thing that the book and much of what we do, my own writing and your own writing, is attempting to make that uh, a point.
2: Well, you said something really interesting at the panel at ACBS that I saw where you said behavioral scientists are essentially doing fieldwork on humans that could be useful to your field. So I think I thought that was really cool. I was like, oh, that, that feels- was
0: my, That was my immediate response upon upon meeting Tony. And I was just bravely kind of doing this kind of fieldwork myself and feeling quite proud uh, for, for doing it. And then after meeting Tony and others, I thought, oh my heavens, these people have been doing it with a high degree of proficiency. So they are applied cultural evolutionists. That's what they're doing. They're causing change in the real world. And so I have so much to learn from them. And to be studying human behavior and psychology in the context of everyday life, studying people and their environments is the most important basic science you can do. That is the backbone of evolutionary research. You can't understand a single species without first studying it in its natural environment. And if that's not how you're studying people, that's bad science, my friend. So you, and so contextual behavioral science, that's the hallmark, is to be studying people in the context of their everyday life, all of a sudden becomes the counterpart of field work in evolutionary science. I'm
1: not sure how many uh, of your uh, listeners who are clinicians think of themselves as doing field work in evolution science, but actually we are we're we're looking at rigidity that's creating problems and they're trying to create flexibility there well that's central to being for for systems to be able to evolve if you just keep doing what you've been doing you'll get what you've been getting and people go for help to clinicians in part because they don't know how to to do that other times they've been chasing things that are kind of adaptive peaks it's not that they're awful but they don't lead anywhere you know you start out with a beer pretty soon you're drinking two and then you're drinking seven and you know what's what are you going to drink 20 i mean what's the next one i mean and and so next thing you've got an addiction you're seeking help you know some of the steps along the way might have just even been social i just want to be part of the group when i'm using this drug or you know i want to be included and so we, we know something about how to walk people down these adaptive peaks. And so, the, why? So they can walk up a taller one that the was one they really want to walk up. Well, it turns out evolution has good concepts as to the conditions under which those happen and you know, how, how to make those kinds of, of shifts. And also, sometimes what happens if you don't? I mean, evolution unguided doesn't, is not going to lead you necessarily any place you want to go.
0: That's, yeah, let me jump in with, to make that foundational point, that evolution uh, is the problem in addition to the solution. That evolution, what counts as adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word, frequently deviates from what we want to do in a normative sense of the word. So frequently evolution causes um, results in outcomes that are selfish, benefits me, not you, us, not them, or short-term benefits, not long-term so if you look at that most of the behaviors that we consider problems, then they're actually adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word. Bullying is adaptive. Short-term sex is adaptive. Many kinds of experiential avoidance are adaptive. Many kinds of aversive social interactions in families, for example, are adaptive in the very narrow, narrow sense that, that, um, that the people who are behaving that way are being reinforced for their behaviors. And so the solution to that is to manage the evolutionary process. Uh, Evolution will be taking place, but you have to actually set the parameters so that it aligns evolutionary forces with our normative goals. And you will never do that if you're not basically knowledgeable about evolution.
2: You know you talk about selfishness and altruism within groups and how group altruism can be really beneficial in terms of you know evolutionary processes. How do we guide that in a helpful way? Like how do we increase altruism within social groups and maybe use this to solve some social problems that we might be facing right now?
0: Well, very often in academic articles, um, it's common for them to begin by saying, Oh, cooperation is such a problem. How could we explain cooperation? And here's my little contribution to that. But I think that really by this point, we have a very good understanding of how cooperation can succeed in in a Darwinian contest. In fact, we have so much knowledge about that that we could actually go about now in a practical sense and work with real world groups and multi-group ecosystems and go about implementing Cooperation, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, And that's another reason why I so uh, enjoy interacting with uh, this crowd, uh, Steve and and all of his colleagues, is because they're action oriented. Action oriented. They're not like an academic scientist who just does this stuff and then assumes that it's going to translate down the road. So, um, ProSocial, which is uh, one of our major projects, is a, a framework that we have developed to actively work with groups, to make them more pro-social internally, and to help them be pro-social actors in a larger world. And we're ambitious about this. We want to be working worldwide. We want a system that will expand basically with demand. So that's what's one of the many things that are in progress.
1: You know, the, for people who have not um, been following evolutionary theory, you know, really, David had a role in bringing back an idea that Darwin himself talked about, but it got buried and uh, uh, almost became an object, could you say, an object of ridicule? Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say, which is that selection occurs at all levels, including at, at the level of, uh, of groups. And when you include that, it so changes your thinking. Uh, I think we'll take it in a different direction that i think will will touch on everybody who's a practitioner even if you're not inter- if you're not working with how to get groups to function in pro- more pro-social ways you can think of the client you're going to see next that individual has parts of them that are competing for their time and attention you know that that critical voice from their mother or that horrible uh, rape that happened and it's worth attention to a degree, but it's not worth what happens when our clients fall into rumination uh, or into worry. Uh, and so uh, multi-level thinking ha- helps me think about, well, how do I, if how do we create cooperation within what does peace of mind look like? And so it's the same concept at every level. And, uh, the kinds of things that we do another example of it that not just multi-level it's multi-dimensional you're not just one evolutionary dimension and when oh, i'm talking to clinicians i i ask them how many people now ask their clients about how much they sleep how many people ask their clients about what they eat and almost all the hands go up and i say okay if it's 20 years ago raise your hand if you would have raised your hand to those two questions and almost nobody raises their hand there's something's happened where we begin to appreciate, you know, we're not just an individual. There's parts of us that require attention, and there's strands and streams that are part of us. And but that balance and that cooperate that cooperation, even at the level of the group called me, or the group called you. And once you see that, it's not foreign at all to scale it into actual uh, small groups and so forth. I. I, I want to just connect over in one little way, in, in in this way also, that we are now learning, and I think this is why the future is pretty clear. I really, I don't, I don't think there's much doubt that when you say it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen in part because evolutionists and uh, biologists know they need environment behavior now in a way that they didn't know just 10, 15 years ago. Our conversation right now, not only has a chance to sort of go on almost as its own evolutionary dimension. You may record this. Every human being on the planet could die, somebody else could discover it later. It's like a, you know having a seed that's uh, you know in, in the dirt that will germinate again, uh, you know 100 years later you put water on it. Uh, you know we're, we've created something that's like that. but also right now this conversation could up and down regulate uh, part of your uh, genome. By genetic regulation, and we can—we're not very far away from just normal practitioners doing oral swabs to see whether or not we're up or down regulating stress-related genes with uh, methylation, for example. We know there's a study with 15 minutes of uh, uh, clinical work uh, affects uh, hundreds of genes in a reliable way. So we're one life form, but we're many dimensions at many levels. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and I think the one thing that's so cool about all this is how it just gives us a more complete picture of these really complex people and start to think about people in a much more, you know, just a grander perspective, which I think is really wonderful. Um, And I mean, just to kind of, switch gears a little bit, like one of the things that we really think about, we're really applied on this podcast, and we really think about how to translate all of this science and all of this information about people and from psychological science into daily life. And so I'm just gonna go a little bit of a more personal route. You know, you're talking about how how this is important in terms of groups and people within groups. Have there been ways that that this understanding of human evolution has affected your own relationships and the way that you interact within groups and within um, relationships with other people in your lives.
0: Oh, totally. suffuses it. And uh, that actually extends to uh, ACT training. So uh, when I learned about uh, ACT training and thought of it in an evolutionary way, then I, I quickly incorporated it into my own, uh, <clears throat> my own life. And the core design principles, basically the way groups need to be organized to or facilitate cooperation, it's just thoroughly second nature to me, mm-hmm. um, and I apply it in my own life, so um, um, absolutely.
1: Well, I mean, I, I'll take an example. <clears throat> when um, David talks about the core design principles, he's talking about the principles that Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in economics for in 2009, uh, she, she's died since, but David spent quite a bit of time with her. I spent a couple days uh, with her, and. Those principles were. She won the Nobel for showing that common pool resources—forests, lakes, rivers, streams, fisheries, etc.—could be protected for long periods of time without top-down government regulation. Uh, you know, without the normal ways we think about how capitalism would. No, by cooperation, by but only under certain conditions. So I I look at my own. Family life. I look at my the clinic. I look at the the, the uh, academic program. I look at my associations with this point of view. If people know the psychological flexibility model from ACT, if they are ever to come to an ACBS and you were there, so you know this.
2: I've been a few times. Yeah.
1: There's a quality of the folks who are there. Would you agree?
2: Absolutely. Something
1: very yeah. open and receptive. Except, you know, taking the perspective of others or something kind of values-focused. If you're sitting there by yourself, somebody's going to come up and say, oh, wh- where are you from or something. It's unusual.
2: Steve, it's- I have to tell you, my husband came with me to Montreal this year for a couple of days. And yeah. he's a scientist. He's you know PhD scientist. And he came to one of the events and was like, wow, this is a really different vibe than what I'm used to in academic circles. Yeah. So he observed it right away.
1: Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Because we've, we've modeled... We consciously modeled ACBS around the psychological flexibility model. And we tried to reduce unnecessary hierarchy and so forth. But we've run into problems. So for example, the recognized trainers, we have a process when you become a recognized trainer of ACT through ACBS. Uh, and we have a lot of control things in there to make sure we don't create hierarchy, you know, that you, you'll you give away your protocols for low cost or no cost. We discourage people uh, and they even sign a value statement that, uh, of uh, uh, certifying therapists and, you know, creating hierarchy and giving anointing. I know you don't. Lots of things in there that are that, that are really cool. Yeah, but now that we have almost 100 recognized trainers, we started getting conflicts and we didn't know what to do with them. I mean, we, we have wonderful accepting values-based people, but we're still people and we have conflicts. You know, I thought that was my idea. You've come in, you're setting up your workshops in a way that interferes, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, we have kind of nature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we've spent now a year going through a process of looking at the core design principles and looking at our own psychological flexibility at the level of us as individuals, but then at the level of us as a group using the matrix, which some people may know of, a a kind of a simple tool for a quick orientation towards uh, what your values are and what you need to do to move in that direction and what gets in the way, often the thoughts, feelings, memories, bodily sensations that clinicians are used to targeting. We walk through that process of looking at those things at the level of the individual, then of us as a group, and then the core design principles. We're still working on it, but we've come up now with a, very detailed uh, proposal for how we're going to manage conflict. What is our mission as a group? Uh, you know, how how are we going to actually uh, be able to decide? What what are, what are the, we didn't even have a, a procedure for voting. We were just a group that wasn't functioning well. That would make a really big difference in my life if the trainers of ACT around the world took their level of cooperation. To, and participation and contribution to another level. They're all wonderful folks. You know, they are the ones that are why ACT is well known It's not me, but we had work to do. And so we turned to our colleague here, and uh, uh, with some uh, help from ACBSers who would become very serious about the evolutionary basis of the core design principles and how to integrate them with psychological flexibility, we started with ourselves. And I think we're writing a success story.
0: Cool. And even, even in a group that experienced with ACT Methods, still something more was needed in order to become an efficacious group. And even after knowing that, quite a bit of time and angst was required in order to get there. So it's part of our framing where we say, first, you need a blueprint. You know, how, can it, how, how does a group need to be organized to function as a team? And secondly, even after you have that blueprint, how do you get there? When we know that change is difficult—difficult difficult for individuals, even more difficult for groups—and the fact that this group is, first of all, recognizes the value of it and is succeeding, but that it's taking a long time, even for them, yeah. is um, is is very a, a telling. But I want to list some of our success stories because. Uh, This is not, I mean, we've developed long enough now so that we know that uh, we have, in some sense, a proven method. Uh, Right after meeting uh, Eleanor Ostrom and working with her, I implemented those principles and I had the opportunity to implement those principles in a school, within a school, in my public school system for at-risk youth. So basically, these were um, uh, 8th and ninth graders uh, that had flunked uh, all of their courses and would almost certainly drop out if something weren't done. And so we organized a school within a school based on the core design principles. And do you know that um, in the very first year, uh, those kids did as well as the average high school student in the school system. Over in Sierra Leone, um, uh, Beata Ebert uh, used ProSocial with her colleagues there to combat the Ebola epidemic and derive cultural practices that would enable them to honor their dead without transmitting the disease. Over in Australia, a very talented man named Robert Stiles worked with a government agency in uh, in Australia and, and uh, had a transformative effect. And so this goes on and on. Uh, so uh, we know that we have something that's working, and now uh, it's a matter of taking it up to scale. In fact,
1: if you could say uh, there's a chapter in the, the uh, book that's that's out that walks through uh, ProSocial, and uh, this these questions you're asking about how we're... Uh, interacting just personally and professionally and so forth is replicated in the book that has just come out because what we did was we took uh, teams where all uh, we did was we gave the two teams, one from the evolution science side and one from the behavioral science side, a topic. And you said, write about whatever you want to write about on that topic. And we didn't even make sure that they were overlapping at all or overlapping too much or we just said right on that and we rolled the dice hoping that this would work and then they had a conversation and they read their each other's chapters and we recorded that we put a pressy of the conversation in the book and so if you do buy this book what will be interesting is not just how, how many areas where we have productive cooperative things to do between the behavioral science side and the evolution science side, uh, you'll be able to see that what we've been playing out and with pro-social, there's other aspects in other areas. I mean, you'd name it like of, of health and what we should be eating or uh, in area after area after area, child development and how we should be able and the same thing is true. So I hope people will see a kind of a, a glimpse into the future the book uh, that just came out I wouldn't say is a turnkey applied book or anything it's a conversation
2: yeah
1: a multifaceted conversation and if you come away from it and you realize these were done independently and then people talked it's stunning how interesting these two chapters at area yeah. penetrate so we're, the book we're finishing next is the book on pro-social, and we hope that uh, by the end of our week, we'll be darn close to having
0: a productive week. That is with our colleague Paul Atkins in uh, Australia, who is also the, uh, one of the central members of our pro-social development team.
1: And, and as an author in the book that just came out, the one you mentioned.
2: And this book, I mean, it's a, I think it's a really interesting way to try to bridge your fields and to see what, how you can make these connections. And I mean, I think that's a really creative way to go about doing this, just bring these people in the field together and see what they have to say. What do you think are some of the really cool takeaway ideas that emerged from doing it in this way?
0: Well, what I want to say is that when you learn the evolutionary uh, toolkit, What that means is there's a single set of concepts that could be applied to almost any situation. That toolkit, because evolution is a multi-dimensional, multi-level process, that takes place also at at multiple scales. So there's genetic evolution, there's cultural evolution, there's your personal evolution, there's your, your epigenetic system, there's your symbolic system, and they're all intertwined with each other. That means that you're employing this toolkit in um, in in many different ways, and the fact that you that there you that there can be a single toolkit is really the central advantage of the whole thing. So in the book, you get a you got a sample of these different ways, and one consistent difference between the evolutionary authors and the CBS authors was that the evolutionary authors, uh, not being practiced at thinking about uh, behavior. Uh, change as, as an evolutionary process. Not being familiar with Skinner or any of that, uh, their their thoughts about evolution are mostly about genetic evolution. Uh, so, for example, it's it's very common in the in the in the development literature, the child development literature, to think that the optimal envir- environment for development is a nurturing environment, and if you grow up in a harsh environment that's not nurturing then you'll be compromised in a number of ways. You'll break down like an automobile that's broken down. And that is arguably the most common way of thinking about it uh, among developmental psychologists. But from an evolutionary perspective, no, no, no. The idea is that species, all species, including our own, have existed in a range of environments throughout their evolutionary histories. And when the going gets tough, the tough don't fall apart. They, They evolve in ways that are appropriate for the harsh environment.
2: As a parent, I find that comforting.
0: <laughs>
2: People, there have been a lot of things that human children have been through that are, yeah.
0: And so there's a, and so and so there are such things as a fast and slow life history strategy, comes into it that in a harsh environment uh, you're gonna you're gonna develop fast, you're gonna mature fast, you're gonna have a, a suite of behaviors, uh, it's gonna it's gonna uh, dictate your your uh, sexual strategies everything like that, um, all being kind of triggered by, by environmental circumstances. So there you're getting a big, big input of genetic evolution and developmental processes that are been shaped by genetic evolution. And you're not getting much of anything about what you can do with a person in that situation, about their psychological flexibility, how you can help them do something. Basically the individual person as, um, as an evolutionary process and so that was reflected actually in a number of the chapters is that you know we had to point that out as moderators isn't it interesting that the evolutionists here you know took the topic this way and and you took the topic that way and what you really needed there is an integration everyone could see that so that i think and then and the reader will see that
1: well and i i think the the single biggest lesson i took away from it is the consilience that emerged Uh, between the teams as they discussed it. Not point-to-point agreement, they weren't writing the same things, but they were writing things that played off each other in interesting ways. And this comes back to the point that I was uh, saying earlier that I I think is kind of a takeaway for this audience, which is I think if you're thinking in functional terms, in contextual terms, if you really take that as your basic philosophical stance when you're working with somebody clinically, you're very close to doing things that are sensible uh, from an evolutionary point of view, but it, you're not going to be good at it unless you spend time really thinking that through and being able to see what's critical. You see those moments when you see these repertoire narrowing processes or these moments where you get context sensitivity that will be helpful to the person or uh, you know persistence uh, of a, a pattern that has begun Uh, through integrating it into a larger pattern or repeating it until it's a habit. So it doesn't complicate, it simplifies. If you think about the difference between good science and, uh, let's say, um, uh, somebody who has a a huge recipe file and is a good cook. If you're a good cook and you have to do it with recipe files, yeah, you can specify, here's exactly what you should do. Tink, 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 tink. Well, within that metaphor, we have people coming in who are, you're not sure which recipe card to grab. But it's okay if you can see the principles. And I think we're used to thinking about that in terms of theories and models. But we've thought about it more on the science side in terms of, you know, here's a protocol, None of us like following protocols, typically. Something's wrong with them. It's too many sessions. It's too few. There's, a, there, there's comorbidities that weren't talked about. This person has this socioeconomic challenges, that, that health challenge. And yet, that's what our science is giving to clinicians. It's like, here's, a, here's the recipe for this little category. But turns out that category is not really a very functional category. It's a syndromal one. With the idea that underneath that is a latent disease, and you know, 30, 40 years into that, having spent billions of dollars, even NIMH doesn't want to do it anymore. They're saying enough. We've got to go to processes, you know, Not everybody knows that, by the way, who are practicing clinicians, that NIMH does not want to fund randomized trials focus on DSM categories anymore. They just don't want to do it. They want to focus on processes of change and processes that lead to pathology. Now they're making a bet on brain circuits, and more so, I mean, it's a very biologically oriented institute. But that's okay. Let's let all flowers bloom and let's see what what uh, captures the most uh, ability to to move forward. Good science simplifies. I mean, e equals m c squared is spectacular, and everybody knows it from a you know a fourth grader on. <laughs> Uh, not because it's complicated or it's hard to understand really, but because it's so simple and it captures so much. Wouldn't it be cool if we could walk into our work with clients having just a small handful of things that we really have to track and yet being able to fit to the individual and their needs and the families they're part of and the work sites they are part of and so forth. Well, this is uh, I think uh, a kind of science that we can bring into the into the vision of people who are trying to do applied work. And if you if you buy this book and read it, you'll read in area after area after area, after area that we already have connections. We just need to take that next step in community and cooperation between these two fields uh, to build it out in a way that serves the
0: interests of the lives of
1: the people that we serve.
2: Uh, right. As a clinician, I find that really exciting.
0: I want to highlight a concept which we have not yet highlighted. Earlier I said that a major class of dysfunction are behaviors that are adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word, but not aligned with our normative goals. And there's another major class of dysfunction, which is evolutionary mismatch. And those are things which actually were adaptive in some past environment, but are no longer adaptive in the current environment. In the book, one of the pairs of chapters uh, is by uh, Kelly Wilson on the CBS side, and Aaron Blaisdell on the evolutionary side about evolutionary mismatch. And both of them begin by telling their personal stories. So this actually goes back to how does this actually relate to one's personal life? Both of them have been transformed by changing their diets, their exercise regime, and other everyday practices to be more in tune with their ancestral adaptation. So when Steve said earlier as for a show of hands how many how many clinicians actually ask your clients, you know what are you, how are you sleeping? what are you eating and and that, and that the way that you interpret that reflects the fact that we are species like any others, that we evolved, our ancestors ate certain things, moved certain ways, slept certain ways, and lived in certain social environments and that if we go outside that envelope, then we are simply going to be mismatched to our environments. There's a whole line of inquiry there that, uh, that we can pursue as scientists, as clinicians, and as individuals just trying to improve our own lives as they did in their individual lives. And the social dimension of that brings us back to the idea of nurturing environments. Even if you're a clinician working with an individual, uh, if that individual is suffering, it's very likely because they exist in a social environment which lacks the basic ingredients of living in a, a cooperative group where you're known by their actions, so on and so forth. And so the, the solution uh, in part can be an alteration of the way you think about it and so on, but it, it should also be an alteration of your social environment.
2: At, you know, and I was thinking as I was prepping to, to talk to you guys about technology use, I think is one area, and I'd be just curious your thoughts that it seems to me like technology is, there's a lot happening right now and it's becoming such a big, I mean, this is part of humans, what we do is we develop, we invent new tools and new technologies, and yet right now humans are doing something that to me seems a little you know, we're glued to our phones and screens most of the time. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, to me, it seems like there's something very strange going on right now.
1: I think it's a double-edged sword. And and if we are able to manage it, you know, there's a lot of potential for good, but we we need to be able to think about it uh, properly, this evolutionary mismatch uh, concept. When we put the psychological piece in there, just in terms of direct contingencies, Lots of things change in evolutionary biology. You have niche construction, niche selection. I mean, be, just because you have operant learning, for example, you can approach an environment, stay there, for, you know, long enough period of time that it changes the selection pressure. Uh, the examples usually uh, used as the flamingo's beak. I mean, that flamingo is digging around in the mud for those crustacea before they uh, evolve that very weird, shaped beak with things in them that are sort of like what whales used to filter out uh, uh, plankton and so forth uh, uh, swimming around. Well, the same thing has happened with our symbolic level. The symbolic level initially, I think, was an extension of cooperation. It very soon went to problem solving, and it had all kinds of positive benefits for us as human beings. But it also began to create niches that can allow, for example an enormous amount of isolation we didn't evolve to be alone but you know look at your clients you have clients coming to see you where the only person who talks to them in a a week is you yes I mean this is poison to human beings and yet we've created an environment where that's possible you can go to the grocery store you you know you don't actually and the same thing with our technology we now have a technology for example which you're constantly exposed to threat it's cognitive threat it's not literal threat but you're in the functional equivalent of you know a very dangerous uh, environment full of predators but by, by just watching the, the newscast and you're in this constant flow of judgment where you're at, right at risk to, from being cast out of the group or yearning to be part of some sort of constructed group because I'm part of this tribe, you know, I'm the Trump voter, or I would never vote for Trump on my life depended on whatever the thing is. And that has changed our world in ways that we need to manage. I mean, there's enormous opportunities, for example, for social connection, cooperation, worldwide. We can get on the phone here and talk to almost anybody in the world who has a phone what an amazing thing that is for, for, for global thinking. Because one of the things that's built in into uh, multilevel thinking is there's no way to stop. You have to keep nesting, and eventually it means everything we do is part of what we all are doing. So this kind of planetary responsibility comes in as a natural extension. That could be a wonderful tool. Those screens that my 12-year-old is addicted to could be a wonderful tool for that. But it could also be a tool for constant exposure to threat, to judgment, to blaming and shaming and bullying and all the kinds of things that make us small and make us suffer. And we need to manage it. We need to figure out uh, cultural ways of uh, allowing us to adjust to this Uh, invention this concept of invention and and change that opens up new vistas but creates new challenges
0: so the so uh when we say that this is all a double-edged sword and we look at it through the lens through an evolutionary lens especially the lens of multi-level selection we're saying that these new technologies are altering social interactions in a way which can either be functional at a group level or not and this is not new i mean technology Technologies have existed way, way back. I mean, a, a, a spoken language, I mean, written language is a technology. And it was a technology that was at first confined to a very small group of elites. And so therefore created inequalities, dysfunctional uh, outcomes until it became more democratized, uh, uh, for example. It's possible that even spoken language is a technology, a cultural technology, which at first was hugely beneficial for those who invented it. And then became widespread and embedded, and then you got gene culture coevolution and things like uh, uh, things like that. And so when we look at the current situation, I'm actually studying this very actively right now. The Internet age is a major evolutionary transition, and with my colleague Alan Honick, we're doing a series of interviews. And he actually looked back in the history, and the the first telegraph, the message of the first telegraph was "What has God wrought?" <laughs> and the first transatlantic cable was, you know there can be no longer conflict among nations now that we could all communicate <laughs> with each other. Oh, and then, if
2: only that were true.
0: <laughs> and, the, and the whole concept of free speech and the First Amendment says that, you know, what we want to create is a free market of ideas. Just let everyone can say what they want and that, and that good will come of that. Uh, all of those reflect tremendous naivety, um, including the First Amendment, that we can just say anything we want. That's not how social interactions work. If you look at how social interactions work in a small group setting, then the, the, the amount of regulation for what you say, and, and of course there's dissent, very much so. But you also just can't trash people or, or state falsehoods or anything like that. That gets corrected very fast. So uh, it's a matter of putting in the right regulations. There's wonderful success stories that way. My last trip I took, I stayed in an Airbnb, and I moved around through Lyft. And in both of those cases, I was interacting cooperatively with total strangers with confidence because a reputation system was built into it, mm-hmm. which basically weeded out misbehavior to an amazing degree. And, I, and in the process, I met real people, drivers and hosts, and I enjoyed interacting with them. It enriched my experience in terms of real-world interaction, not just anonymous electronic interactions. There's all sorts of great examples of open-source uh, development, uh, which are pro-social and creative, and and just uh, and wonderful, and of course we have all the counterexamples. So what we need, uh, we need th- um, the evolutionary paradigm uh, to structure our electronic interactions, uh, just as much just as much as we need to to our face-to-face interactions.
2: Well, and I think that this is this idea of the double-edged sword is really true for a lot of human traits that make humans unique, like language. Language is a double-edged sword for humans. And that reminds me of relational frame theory. So I have really basically two more questions to ask you guys before I let you get back to working on your book here. But, um, you know, if we think of humans as a species... And actually, I would just love to hear you, David Sloan Wilson, tell us a nutshell version of like, what are the top things that make humans most unique as a species? Because we're really kind of weird in a lot of ways in the animal kingdom. And then maybe Steve Hayes could do us the honor of tying that into relational frame theory and how this connects to human suffering. Because I just, you know, I have the two of you here. I got to take this opportunity to hear it straight from you.
0: Great challenge, okay, well so let's do it. I'll make it easy for Steve by saying that what's uh, distinctive about our species, most distinctive is this symbolic inheritance system uh, that, uh, that we have this very rapid process of evolution that requires symbolic systems. Uh, we need our symbolic systems just as much as we need our genes. So the idea that we have not just genotypes, but symbotypes, and we need to evolve those symbotypes um, gets a straight to relational frame theory, and so uh, you probably didn't imagine that I'd finished with my piece so fast, but um, i I'll, I'll pass it right on to Steve
1: and i'll I'll fill in a little bit for for David because uh, one thing he taught me is the, 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 the three C's you know that uh, cooperation, cognition, and culture are not unique, um, perhaps cognition in a particular way, but at least they're characteristic a particular way to, to human beings. And what, uh, you know, I think we've known in the behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, the evidence-based therapies, we need a theory of cognition that really works. We've known human beings are very good at being able to detect rela- non-arbitrary relationships, you know, faster, bigger, et cetera, all these different kind of relationships that are in our environment. The RFT claim uh, goes down to this finding. If there's a name for an object, object and then you hear the name you orient towards the object without a d- specific training on that it's a two-way street and if and if it isn't you didn't understand the word uh, children who are very uh, developmentally uh, delayed uh, sometimes will have to be chopped in both directions and they don't generalize but most human infants by the time they're around uh, 12 months old 12 13 14 months old are able to do that and then put these things into networks uh, that changes their world because now, within their own skin, you know they're able to think about things that are not present to predict what would happen if they do certain things because they have before and after relations they've learned. Or would this be a better plan than that because of comparative ones? I think it started with just cooperation, being able to say a name for something uh, to uh, you know, a member of your your trooper band or tribe that would be able to perhaps be brought to you from a distant place because of that two way street of words standing for something, and then it's relational in a different way. It's relational between a speaker and a listener, and so it's kind of fascinating. I think that to think of what we're doing right now is kind of a reflection of social relational processes. Built out into this kind of cognitive uh, network. Um, now, the the problem with that is, is that it may have begun as extension of cooperation. Could you bring me an apple from across the ravine? That it, it may have then really caught hold of problem solving. You know, if I do this, I'll have food next winter. Uh, but it has been so spectacularly useful and so dominant, especially once you get to written language. Uh, that it creates problems for people because, first, everywhere you go, your history goes. When I said, you know, so for example, if you've been raped, I guarantee you there's many people listening to this podcast who have been raped. And because an old bald guy made a sound, rape, you know, some folks felt like crying, some folks maybe have even turned off the podcast. And so it means that unlike the rest of creation where being in a formal situation that reminds you of past dangers or harms, we could be in any situation and be reminded of those things. So we carry our pain with us. And what we need to do then is to learn how to not take this, what now is a very dominant problem-solving repertoire, completely overwhelming us. And if I can be allowed just three more sentences, Sure. Turns out that there is a mode of mind that's in language itself that all of us have that we can use. And this is what we're trying to do in act, which is that all of us know full well when we see a spectacular sunset, not to click into analytic problem-solving mode. I've never been with somebody who saw a spectacular sunset who said, gosh, it needs a little more blue over there. And that, that, that cloud was shaped wrong. And, you know, no, what they say is, wow. Right. So what, what that is, is a mode of mind that's observant, seeing the whole thing, describing it. Look how pink that is and appreciating it. Wow. That's not the same as evaluation and judgment. It's appreciation. We say, well, that's positive. I'm dealing with suffering. No. If I put a crying child in front of you who tells you something about how they've been abused or harmed or something, you're going to say, wow. Wow. Why did you say that word? And you're probably not going to say, oh, you're crying too much or stop crying. What's the matter with you, big baby? You're not going to do that. You're probably going to hug that child and try to find, well, what is that? You're going to observe it. You're going to describe it. You're feeling so sad. You'll actually probably even help the, the, the child understand what is the emotion and give a word for it, which turns out is, an amazingly powerful thing in the basic lab, just being able to name your emotions and observe them, so you have that observation, description, and and appreciation of the whole, but also this quality of wowness. Uh, and I just wrote a blog called Wowfulness. You know, I think mindfulness sometimes turns into self-soothing and all that, but maybe Wowfulness is—it's a, a kind of just a, a joke thing, but. There's a wow mode of mind that we can bring even to our own suffering or to our conflicts with others and so forth. And so let's not let, let this uh, problems, uh, you know, cooperative problem solving repertoire that is now got through our science and technology and written language, but now, you know, screens and so forth, so dominant in human beings lives that they hardly know how to step back and just observe and describe and appreciate the wholeness of their own lives and the lives of the people they love, Uh, I think we can train that and we can be guided as to how to do it and why it matters uh, by some of the principles that we're talking about.
0: Well, this brings us to elements such as rituals and what religions do well, Uh, people who feel spiritual and have a sense of awe, Uh, something that we call heartfelt rather than headfelt and understand those also from this uh, uh, perspective. That's one of the things I've learned in my everyday life, by the way, to actually be more receptive to uh, rituals, for example, to understand how they work, but still to be influenced uh, by them. And I think that uh, uh, an important contribution of this evolutionary perspective for people that really take it on is that it is uh, inspiring and it actually does or religion or a spiritual system in that sense of providing a cosmology of something which you are just something that's so explanatory that you are awestruck by it and you find that very motivational based on this then you it really it really um uh, motivates you to 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 do things yeah. it's worth noting by the way that awe means
1: uh, with reverence but it also means and fear the original word of it. And we see that in awful or uh, that sense of awe we have in the... And so, and I, I love that fact that it it is, you know, this this uh, wow mode of mind, is this, this awe mode of mind is available to us. And part of what's cool, it is of seeing the whole of it. Evolution science helps you see the whole of it. Mm-hmm. As best as we can as human beings. It's the best single effort that's ever come together in human thought that gives you that appreciation for the whole and Whatever you do you're part of that whole and 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 the the people who are listening to this who are Dealing with behavior change you're a very important part of it. And when you see kind of how This client where you get them to appreciate the whole but then see how that fits into the larger whole. It gives us a place to put our energies as uh, professionals and as scientists working together.
0: Well, when you look at, um, I'm afraid this podcast is going to go on and on and on, but uh, <laughs> um, um, if you look at 12-step programs, we're told that one of their most important ingredients is to there to be some kind of higher good, basically. Um, uh, it said in the AA manual, you know, selfishness is due to the problem. We're all trying to be stage managers, and then we get upset, and then and so on. And what we need to do is to regard uh, that we're part of something larger than ourselves. It doesn't matter much what it is. You know, it can be a religion, it could be something else. And that's why you go about apologizing to people, and so on and, and so forth. I think there's a very large element of truth to that. And it explains the concept of sacred as not being a religious concept. Uh, it's basically, it's the acknowledgement that there's something that's more important than you are. When something is sacred, you subordinate yourself to it. When something is profane, you dominate it. You use it for your own end. And so we can say something like the earth is sacred or science is sacred. The truth is sacred. What it means is, is that, yeah, I mean, we are going to behave in a way that, that respects these things that we're calling sacred. And uh, multi-level selection once again comes in when we regard ourselves as members of a group and that that group being nested within larger groups and the ultimate group being the Earth and the whole Earth and including its non-human components in addition to its human components. When we really take on the fact that, um, that selection at lower levels tends to be disruptive at higher levels unless it's actually coordinated, then it leads to a whole earth ethic in a very powerful way. I mean, we can say, science says, in a sense, in a, in a, in a way that's very hard to refute, that uh, first and foremost, we need to relate what we do at any scale to the welfare of the whole earth. And then that's not enough because it has to be, every, all the lower levels have to be orchestrated, coordinated um, accordingly. So it leads to a whole earth ethic. Many people already have a holy ethic, but they don't. We we have a new kind of foundation for it, which is uh, which is uh, very significant.
2: It's a pretty cool perspective shift. I love just kind of looking at this broader level of, you know, just awe and transcendence and humanity. And it's, it's really wonderful to have the chance. I feel like I'm having a bit of an, a wow moment myself, just having the opportunity to talk to you too about this and hear your thinking on, on these areas that are just so fascinating. And so I'm going to ask you one final question before we wrap up here. Um, It's kind of on that level too. I think you each have a really pretty amazing legacy in your own fields as individuals, um, you know, doing your academic work. I'm curious what you're hoping your joint legacy will be in this collaboration that you're doing with each other. Where are you hoping that this will head?
1: Um, Maybe I'll I'll start because it's really, uh, you know, I think uh, behavioral science is part of the life sciences and belongs underneath the umbrella of evolution science. That's not my idea. (laughs) I actually come out of the Skinnerian tradition, but then saw that it had some limitations, especially around the area of language and cognition, tried to clean that up, and lots of wonderful things have happened. You know, the uh, third wave work inside CBT and so forth. Now I'm co- you know cooperating with people in CBT, like Stefan Hoffman, trying to build these kind of process-based focus into C- CBT itself. It's, but I would come out of a Skinnerian background, and that was his vision was that we would be able to uh, nest behavioral science within a larger set of of, uh, sciences that are focused on variation, selection, and retention, focused on evolutionary processes. If we could make that happen, a couple things happen that are real important. One is I think it will empower our work, the ability that we can scale from the individual to the group, or that we can have principles that simplify our task and complicate our task, even in these so-called transdiagnostic processes as the DSM falls away. Uh, uh, Allison Harvey wrote a book on this about 10 years ago and there's already 120 of them. There's now about 210 of them or something. There's so many that no clinician can keep all those processes uh, in their head. We, We need to figure out a way to simplify this. But then the other thing I'd say in terms of the vision of it is that when we're, Finally, at the table, this is part of what I cried about after uh, meeting David: is the possibility that we could be at the table. You know, we have some things to say that are really important to helping to understand evolutionary principles and for making it acceptable and of interest for policymakers and others to use the e-word without fearing as though they're they're breaking a rule or something. I mean. We have this anomaly that there's even states saying you can't teach evolution. The most powerful theory known in all of the life sciences. I mean, it's the one without which biology doesn't make sense, but not just that. Behavioral science doesn't make sense. Why is that? Well, I think part of it is people need to know that these aren't principles for like weeding out the disabled and making sure they don't reproduce or some sort of horrible distortion. Now, these are principles that will help you raise your child. They'll help you have a clinic that cooperates and works. They'll help you serve people better. And when the society sees that, I think it's going to open its heart and minds to evolutionary thinking in a new way. And that has a chance to be transformative. So my hope is a one-two punch. We want to be under the umbrella. We want to be part of it. But we also because we bring this powerful history of of applied science making a difference in people's lives and you can't read a you know red book without somebody saying you know go seek out an evidence based therapist first let's take advantage of that opportunity to actually help our evolution science colleagues language about this and think this through in a way that whether you're a congressperson or a Uh, you know, a mother with uh, small children, that this makes perfect sense to you, to to be reading books about how evolutionary principles might help you in your tasks. That's not very far away. That is something you, I think I could see before I fall over.
2: I think we're Uh, starting to see it a little. I do. I think it's...
1: I do too.
0: So I think that um, what I have to say is very continuous with that. I think that if there's going to be this transformation and if it's going to be rapid then it's going to take place through people that work in real-world settings. It's not going to happen by basic scientists. It's not going to happen by our current leaders of any sort, certainly not our our economic or our political leaders. It's going to happen through people that work in real-world settings of all sorts. And that's what this world of CBS is we have people like yourself working with individuals or with groups or with organizations or all these people that are actually working in real world settings. If they get it and start using those principles, then there'll be a bottom up movement and that bottom up can then engage with a number of top down movements. You need a combination of bottom up and top down and the bottom up part is what's going to take place. I think through this integration of evolution and and um, and CBS, that puts people like you on the front lines, working with the folks that you uh, uh, work with. If you start to employ this perspective and then spread it that way, then that's how it's going to happen.
2: Well, I hope so. And I, I, again, appreciate you guys coming on to talk to us about that. this, because this is one way to get the, the message out to people who are maybe curious, but don't have the same you know, science background that you do, where you're really into this, that, that I'm hoping that we can do our part to translate this. So yeah, I really appreciate your time and your, your week together. Thank you both so much for coming on to the podcast and good luck with your future. I look forward to reading your books um, that, that are forthcoming.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, as you say, uh, to, just to, to reach folks who uh, are already doing such good work and and i think we'll find real support in being able to do that uh, by the uh, evolutionary principles that we're uh, discussing in this book and the ones to follow so uh, thanks for the opportunity to reach out to folks
2: thank you thank you for listening
4: to psychologists off the clock you can find us on itunes facebook and twitter music by john Gu and susie stevens and special thanks to our creative producer dr meg McKelvey.